Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about whether or not cannabis producers are the cause for, say, bad owners and harmful emissions in Metro Vancouver. The regional district seems to think so, but Tenless Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he's going to join us to discuss this ongoing conflict between licensed producers and the regional body. I do want to tell you something that's going on, though, uh, with regards to BIV events. On October 2nd, our expert discussion panel will be examining the best practices to optimize opportunity in times of geopolitical challenge and steer away from those difficult straits. To get more details on this upcoming Business Excellence Series, go to BIV.com slash events. And a little later on today, the BIV Technology Panel featuring Glue Technology Society's Linda Focus and Faber's John Reed. They will be delving into upcoming advances in airport security technology, the prospect of traveling and flying taxis. I, I swear to God, that's true. And whether or not Apple's new credit card is maybe just a little bit too delicate for your own pocket. Before we get there, though, we want to talk to you about Canada's first year of legalized cannabis as it's seen significant industrial development and investments as a range of regulations for licensed consumer outlets and a shortage of supply due to inadequate production is putting maybe a little bit more of the black market on the focus than it should be. So this year on October 9th, we're going to have our cannabis one year on panel examining the opportunities and challenges that have existed and we'll also be providing some insights into the most likely successful steps moving forward again go to biv.com slash events for more information now let's talk to dan sutton So disagreement is brewing between licensed producers and the Metro Vancouver Regional District. We're talking about the cannabis industry right now. Back in the spring, the regional body announced it would be regulating emissions for the cannabis industry. Joining us on the show to discuss this, it is Dan Sutton. He is the CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us here. Glad to be here. So what's at issue here. I understand it from, say, the position of the licensed producers, maybe some more regulations thrown at you, but tell me a little bit of the background about how this came to be. Well, first and foremost, I think it's important to underscore that licensed producers of of cannabis in Canada are very thoroughly regulated. We actually answer to nine regulatory bodies. Uh, Sometimes those regulatory bodies conflict in their guidance. Metro Vancouver is the latest entrant into the sort of regulatory regime and and matrix of different obligations uh, that licensed producers need to meet in this particular region. And ultimately, Metro Vancouver has expressed concern both about odor from cannabis facilities, as well as the environmental risk that's presented from, in their position, volatile organic compounds that are emitted by the cannabis plant uh, that may contribute to uh, ground level ozone concerns and air quality risks uh, as as and, and Metro Vancouver has been mandated with with mitigating and reducing those risks for the city. So I'm not super familiar with volatile organic compounds or, or VOCs as they're called. What are some of the concerns that they have and, and how are they maybe related to or at least they're saying that it's related to cannabis? Well, they've suggested that the volatile organic compounds that 
cannabis emits uh, can contribute to mixing with uh, nitrogen and, and other compounds in the air. And that then leads to, to ground level ozone issues. I think my core concern is that they've, they've grossly overstated the amount of volatile organic compounds that are emitted from cannabis producing facilities here in the lower mainland. This probably comes from just a lack of academic evidence. There's not a lot of information on this. And I know they called a lot of data from Colorado and from other people that were sort of taking some stabs at, at what they, uh, they believe volatile organic compound emissions represent from cannabis production facilities, but they're actually confounded by their own math. So Metro Vancouver has asserted that up to 1% of all of the volatile organic compound emissions uh, in Metro Vancouver could come from cannabis production facilities. Uh, volatile organic compounds are also emitted from trees. So we've got about 60 acres or so, maybe 100 acres in the next few years of cannabis producing greenhouses, all of which filter their exhaust air. Uh, and we have about 160,000 hectares of forested area in British Columbia, or I should say in Metro Vancouver alone. So they've, they've really made, a, 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 in my position, a grossly overstated assertion of the potential impact from, from these cannabis producing facilities. And I also believe that they're actually using this air quality uh, discussion to sidestep the Right to Farm Act and the, the farming regulations that govern odor from cannabis facilities today. So I, I don't have a representative from Metro Vancouver on the show today, and I, I apologize to listeners for that. So I'll, I'll try to glean from them what might be going on here. But uh, is there a certain, I don't know, a, a nimbyism at play here? Because the issue, uh, one of the other issues, though, is there have been a number of odor complaints. Tanless Lab, uh, you guys have received odor complaints as well. From your perspective, could this be coming into play to a certain degree? Yeah. First and foremost, you know, Tanalus Labs has had it validated by both Health Canada and Metro Vancouver air quality bylaw inspectors themselves that our odor filtration infrastructure is compliant. We haven't received any infractions from either of those governing bodies. And so I think that this is a contentious business. It's a contentious industry and people uh, who are opposed to cannabis production, they really will find any tool in their toolkit to be able to, to stand against the growth of this, what will be a massive economic driver in the in Metro Vancouver and in the lower mainland. Um, so I am aware that the history of this proposed re legislation and proposed policy came from a series of disgruntled municipalities that reached out to Metro Vancouver and said, Health Canada is not controlling these odors. The Agricultural Land Commission won't stand against farming. And so we need another group to represent us because we're concerned about odor. Now, the problem is that odor is regulated by the Right to Farm Act. And so Metro Vancouver cannot actually assert themselves until they demonstrate that there's an environmental risk, an air quality risk associated with these odors. And they themselves have kind of confounded that. Is this a, an environmental problem? Is it a public health risk? Or is it just odor from farming? And if it is, in fact, just odor from farming, I think they will find that it'll be very difficult for them to step in uh, and create a precedent that the British Columbia Agricultural Council may be very intimidated by. If we start regulating air quality concerns from farming such as cannabis, what's to stop that then extending into cattle farming, pork farming, uh, you know, other odor intensive crops? Uh, this is this is a precedent that would open up a Pandora's box of problems for the farming industry. And if I interpreted you correctly earlier on, you're saying that maybe there's just not the data to back up those concerns over air quality at this point. Yeah, in fact, uh, the <clears throat> Public Health Ontario 
uh, office, they, they put out a briefing note uh, just that a- actually was quoted by Metro Vancouver. And it suggested that no studies on health effects associated with the exposure to cannabis odors were identified in the scientific or gray literature. The perception of odor is not a reliable way to determine the risk of health effects. So that's coming right from Public Health Ontario. They've done a bunch of research on this. And I admit that the research is early days, but the research being early days from Colorado, from Washington State, you know, there's still no evidence that the odor from cannabis causes public health risk. And until that evidence is is validated, I really think it's a regulatory overstep for Metro Vancouver to assert uh, there being a, a public health risk where there is no evidence. And I'm throwing this question at you. I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we'll try it anyway. But uh, do you know of other jurisdictions, either in Canada or maybe in the United States, in specific states that have uh, cannabis legalized for recreational purposes? Do you know of other bodies that are pursuing similar sorts of avenues for, for regulation at this point? Well, regulating odor, I think, is is ubiquitous uh, among cannabis, like legal cannabis jurisdictions, and and certainly in Canada, our our odor regulations are the most stringent of anyone mm. in the world. So, not only do we have inspections, periodic inspections, uh, unannounced inspections from our federal regulator to validate that our odor control systems are functioning effectively, um, but we we actually have had to collaborate with a few other jurisdictions on that as well, in, including Metro Vancouver. And so I think the, the problem is, is that odor is something that's very hard to quantify. People, you know, being concerned about farm odor and living in farm areas or on the agricultural land reserve, uh, it just seems like a bit of a double standard to me that other farming industries that are odor intensive are not uh, treated with the same you know, social, social appreciation, uh, that, that cannabis is. Have there been any consultations underway with regards to both the public as well as producers with regards to the future of this? There have been consultations. And I mean, we've been, uh, in, in a dialogue with Metro Vancouver for over a year and a half now. I think my core concern is that I've identified and other producers have identified some of the, you know, more concerning, uh, like lack of evidence, claims from Metro Vancouver and Metro Vancouver hasn't really changed their tune. They, we sort of said, look, this is a, this is a statistical assumption. that's very hard to validate. This uh, is something that you guys might be overreaching on. And yet the tone really maintains the, the same. It, they're still driving forward with the same style of regulation. So it's, it's, it's greatly concerning. And I think when you look at the origins of the policy coming from disgruntled municipalities, really looking for an advocate uh, that that's something that I think Metro Vancouver knows it's there on public record, you know, saying we're going to we're going to crack down on this industry uh, without really exploring the, the policy parameters that would allow them to do that. So I think this may very well be a prohibitionist mentality, people who don't want to see the cannabis industry thrive in this jurisdiction, people that don't want to see uh, the lower mainland become what could be like a global economic power when it comes to cannabis production and distribution. Uh, and so that that's why when the policy gets painted with people's perception of, of what should or shouldn't be uh, morally around cannabis, I think that that's, that's hugely concerning. Maybe I'm, I'm just kind of digging into the, the weeds to a certain degree, but just from your own uh, personal experience, uh, you guys specialize in, say, greenhouse 
uh, farming here. Is that going to be cause for any difference between what we'd see at other production facilities with regards to the concerns being raised? Well, ironically, indoor cannabis production, which is massively more energy intensive, requires a huge amount more electricity and, and energy cost. And I think it'd be very easy to make the case that it is more environmentally destructive to produce cannabis indoors. It's easier to filter your exhaust air. And so as a result, is less of a concern for Metro Vancouver. Metro Vancouver is certainly targeting this policy towards large greenhouse environments. Uh, and that, that I think it's a, it's a regressive step. We've had to work really hard to justify with our federal regulators, with our provincial regulators, that greenhouse cultivation uh, being the more sustainable option is also a viable way to create the same quality assurance outcomes, the same security outcomes. This has been a battle that Tantalus Labs has been fighting for the last seven years. And now we're hearing, well, you know, greenhouses may be more sustainable, but they, they are harder to regulate for odor. And so therefore we prefer it if people are growing indoors. I think it's a huge step backwards in the context of environmental safety, which is really what Metro Vancouver should be standing behind. Well, let's talk about the implications here. Let's say everything goes forward with how Metro Vancouver wants. What does that mean for your industry? Well, it's interesting because at the outset, you know, we thought maybe a few concessions, maybe some ongoing evolution of, of odor control systems and measurement of VOCs and, and demonstration of a lack of impact would have been sufficient. Uh, but there's one particular bylaw enforcement officer who is really looking for a wholesale change to the way these these production facilities are cultivating, demanding things like uh, public hearings and, and all, all kinds of pretty aggressive tactics. And he actually, uh, in writing just, just last week, threatened Tantalus Labs with fines of up to a million dollars per day without really saying what we would get fined for. So I think th this has gone from sort of mildly concerning to like really substantially concerning. They, there are people out there that want to crucify this industry, that want to reduce you know, they want to take away the ability for, for local greenhouses in Metro Vancouver to produce cannabis, uh, perhaps in any way, shape or form. And so that, that's why we've, you know, gone together as an industry and said, okay, this is, this is really a lot more assertive than what we'd intended. If Metro Vancouver said, let's, let's learn more about odor emissions, let's learn more about how to adapt your infrastructure and do that in good faith. I think that the industry would be ready to rise to the occasion, but when you get, um, what, what I would call a, a sort of gunslinger style approach, throwing, throwing their weight around and, and asserting that maybe this industry shouldn't exist here, uh, that's, that's problematic. How open are you to further dialogue? How open do you think Metro Vancouver is to further dialogue? We continue to dialogue with Metro Vancouver. Uh, at this time, you know, Tantalus Labs is re reserving some of our findings around uh, VOC emissions and odor controls because it's very feasible that that office could, could use that data to... to it would, they could weaponize that data against us. I know that Metro Vancouver has uh, retained lawyers to, to at least consult on arbitration, which is never a good sign at the beginning of new policy. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that Metro Vancouver comes to a bit more of a grounded strategy over the course of the next few days and weeks. Uh, but I think time will tell on how ready they are to actually take a collaborative approach with industry and, and come up with a set of policy directives that really focus on VOC emission outcomes rather than strategies such as you know wholesale changes in filtration technology or, or whatever else that they're suggesting. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for bringing this to our listeners' attention. I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanless Labs. Stay with us. The BIV Technology Panel joins us next.
So from the pangs of air travel to the potential behind flying taxis, our BIV technology panel joins us this week to delve into some of the hot topics in the industry right now. Joining us today, it is Linda Fawkes. She is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. And John Reed, he is Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of Faber, both based here in Vancouver. Linda and John, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Okay, so first up. New regulations announced this week requiring British airports to carry 3D screening equipment. This is going to be directed for carry-on bags, and it would mean, say, no restrictions on liquids. Keep electronics in your bag as well. I don't know, Linda, is this what everybody's been waiting for at this point with regards to making air travel just a little bit easier? Yes, I think it is, and I think uh, it's because we're waiting for no lineups to happen. We're waiting to get from our car onto the plane, through the gate seamlessly, quickly. And this is the kind of technology upgrade our airports need to make that happen. We haven't seen a technology upgrade in airports since the 80s, really. Yeah, right? I, Nexus was kind of wow with the iris scanners. And if you were smart enough to have a Nexus card, you got to experience that. But really not a lot's happened, except lineups are growing. People are getting frustrated. So this tech is important for us yeah especially uh especially for someone who travels a lot for work you know trying to get through those airport lines as fast as possible i actually just got my nexus six months ago because my uh, girlfriend was tired of me waiting in line so anything to kind of make the travels life a lot easier i think would be great i think it just comes down to safety at this point right um making sure that uh these 3d these 3d scanners are picking up uh anything that could be a potential risk on a plane I got my Nexus last year and it was fun. I just took a flight with a buddy of mine and uh, I was waiting at the gate for quite a while before he uh, caught up to me that day. So it's just kind of like, yes. But the thing is, I still had to take like garbage out of my bag. Like, here's my laptop. And it's just kind of like, what a pain. So they're going to start it off in the UK first. Do you think Canada, I don't know, the authorities here... They're going to be keeping an eye on this. Are they going to be quick to join on board with this, guys? What do you think? I think the TSA is bringing on 300 of them throughout the American network. So I would, you'd expect they'd be landing here pretty quickly. But I I understand that the liquids component of it won't happen for a few years, that that's going to be a little bit farther out as the tech's being tested. Um, Yeah, I think Canada has always been kind of slow in adopting anything new technology wise. Um, you know, if you kind of look, we don't even have ride sharing in uh, Vancouver yet. Uh, that's a whole nother topic among itself. Painful but, topic uh, here on yeah. the tech panel. <laughs> I think it's just, you know what I mean? Like whether it's 3D printers, whether or 3D scanners, sorry, or whether it's something new to kind of speed the process up, I think it needs to happen. Um, I know just like even logistically trying to grab those bins from underneath uh, at some airports can be a bit of a hassle. So if this is going to speed the time up, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I just I don't see Canada adopting it too quickly. I think they want to see the UK and the United States kind of test it out, see what happens and then kind of go from there. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was just doing the math in my head. So since June, I've been on 10 or 11 different flights, including like different legs on the same flight. And what I noticed is like airport procedure is like different every single airport you go to, it doesn't even matter the country. It's like every city has its own rules. And I'm just wondering, like, do you guys think that there has to be some sort of standardization if these things are going to beginning begin to roll out across the, the world on like a larger scale? Yeah, it seems like technology like 
Blip Track out of the Viovo company, a, a New Zealand-based company. That's one of the companies that's trying to standardize that flow of humans from the parking lot to the airplane. And they're doing that with biometrics, with uh, 3D cameras, following the air, the cell phones around the airports to see what where humans are okay. are happening. And this is happening in Amsterdam and Berlin and Copenhagen and London. And that's going to be worldwide. Uh, some system like Blip Track, if it isn't just Blip Track, there's a few competitors in the market. But I think that added layer of basically surveillance of us as we are entering the zone of an airport, the ecosystem of the airport, they're calling it, that's going to really speed us along. That's going to change um, our interaction with airports. It's going to allow airports to pump more people through the terminals without having to expand their footprint. And it's going to make our um, our traffic or flow through all these different airports a little more standardized. So yeah, I think we're going to see platforms, almost operating system platforms for passengers in, in airports around the world look very familiar. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think like on the biomarkers side of things, like I know obviously Nexus having the retina scanners and kind of taking your fingerprints. I think that's really awesome. It definitely does speed up the time. I'm sure you've realized that now, Tyler, from going from a non-Nexus user to a yeah. Nexus user, you're <laughs> speeding through the line, right? Um, I think the the problem with Nexus and the problem with biomarkers is it does take a lot of time for the average person to go to the Nexus office, spend an hour, do the interview process. That can be a little bit scary, you know, having to go talk to TSA, um, have them ask you a bunch of questions, that sort of thing. Um, so I think if there could be a platform that could make, could speed that up and maybe mm -hmm. this one out of New Zealand is that one yeah. where maybe you, I don't know, upload your retina scan online. Sort you of force deal. all your friends and family members to do it because who wants to travel with the non-Nexus guy? That's like, I totally. Know. It's, 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 you know, I'll you're, save your seat in the bar. Yeah, exactly. I was yeah. about to say you're sitting at the bar having a beer while he's at the end of the line. So, um, yeah, I'll give you my Nexus story. Went in, uh, there's an office in downtown Vancouver that I went into that, I, I guess, uh, border guard, American border guards were manning and, uh, they kept trying to do my thumbprints and my, my fingerprints. I had no idea. I have very thin uh, fingerprints. And so it took, uh, I think, five or six tries until they were finally able to, like, scan it. And I'm just like, okay. It was making me nervous as if I was going to get, like, booted out of that office anytime. Cause... Making me wonder what you do with your hands to make that happen. <laughs> I, I had the same issue as well, actually, yeah. at the uh, the Vancouver airport. And I'm, like, shaking there because, you know, you've just got, basically gone through the trenches of getting questionnaired for a while. Yeah. And now you're, like, there putting your fingerprints down and you're like, Am I doing something wrong? And now you're here? setting off alarm bells because yeah, you're totally. sweating. And yeah, yeah. you're like, yeah. what's what's Tyler hiding? Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's why I'm uh, I'm waiting for say the uh, the hyperloop to really take off and I can avoid air travel altogether. But uh, if we're talking about other kinds of air travel, something that is uh, a little bit more curious, and especially maybe for those daredevils, uh, German company Volocopter, they've unveiled its latest takeoff and landing aircraft, and it's uh, trying to get certified soon. To do what? Uh, essentially kind of these flying taxis that they're going to be taking around on short distances, so to speak. Uh, they, they can go, I don't know, if you're in downtown Vancouver, they'd essentially be able to get you to, say, Surrey. So I'm wondering what you guys think. Uh, okay, Qu first question. How long do these things have to be running before either one of you guys would actually consider hopping into a flying taxi and taking these above ground to get to your destination in the region? I do it today. Yeah, I do it today. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's mad, like I'm not going to hop in a random drone. Uh, I don't think yet that hasn't really been tested, but a hundred percent, if I could take a helicopter every day, which is kind of like a flying taxi yeah. to uh, Vancouver to Surrey or wherever I need to go, it definitely would be uh, number one. Well, you line. see the Larry Page backed Kitty Hawk. Have you seen the videos of that flying over San Francisco Bay a few years ago? Okay. 
And so this is a, a same kind of um, vertical takeoff and landing uh, vehicle uh, that you fly yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn to fly it in less than an hour. Uh, they cost about two or three hundred thousand bucks is the idea. And this will be our personalized version of that. They're also working on payloads and moving cargo and things around uh, as well. But that's um, a move not just in the taxi world, but over to us. You know, your neighbor could have one landing on the roof of his house or in his driveway very soon. These are happening right Instead now. Instead of uh, Lamborghinis and Ferraris in Vancouver driving yeah. down Broad Street, soon we'll be seeing <laughs> these uh, private taxis uh, or private airplanes in the sky well, dropping people yeah, off the town. <laughs> I did like with the um, the Velocity, the, the um, vehicle that Tyler was talking about, I like that their goal is to, with the renewable energy, and also to keep it the same price as a taxi. So it's not just a rich guy's platform totally. to move around town. I really like that. Do you idea. think that price point, though, it might be a bit of a challenge, especially let's just think about like maybe the recent rules that the province rolled out with regards to ride hailing and that they're even going to have like price minimums here. I don't know if we're in the best jurisdiction to really foster that, though. Definitely not. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, okay, you guys are far more uh, thrill-seeking than I am as a person. I'm saying, like, let these be around for at least a year before I hop on one of these. But um, uh, props to you two. Well, and the manufacturers are saying, well, we're going to put pilots in there. They don't have to really do anything because these are basically autonomous vehicles. But we'll yeah. put them there for passenger comfort. But the second we figure out that these uh, pilots or these drivers of our self-driving mm-hmm. autonomous cars aren't necessary... They're gone. Those jobs would, are over. Would these flying kind of taxis in Vancouver affect the taxi unions at all? Because that would be a, another whole yeah. topic among itself. What driver's, that, what driver's driver? license do you need yeah, for that? exactly. Right? You know, yeah. what, uh, whose, whose hairs are we putting up on their back okay. at the end of the day there? Uh, well, lastly, guys, uh, let's talk a little bit about Apple here. Uh, we do that a lot on the tech panel, but uh, it's for a little bit of a different reason. They just revealed very specific instructions for its new credit card. I found it pretty amusing, uh, essentially telling you, well, don't put them in your denim pocket. Uh, don't put them in a leather wallet. Uh, don't let your physical credit card touch any change or don't even let it touch any other credit cards, though. Guys, are, are they being a little bit too particular? What's kind of uh, Apple's issue with the whole idea behind a physical credit card right now? Yeah, I think this is just Apple 101. They always come out with some crazy things. I, I found it really interesting, uh, you know, looking at the memes that were associated with the credit card release, like Apple releasing the uh, credit card holder for $99 sort of deal. Right. Um, very similar. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Apple, I use Apple Pay all the time. I love it. I love having my credit card on my phone. I'd love to eliminate a wallet altogether. Um, I think, you know, Apple's kind of just going after that millennial kind of card play. Um, being a younger person, you know, having the metal credit card was always kind of a who you kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so I think it's just Apple's kind of doing it at more of a marketing stunt than rather actually pushing the card uh, for people to get it. Yeah. And being an older person is always forgetting where their stuff is. I like not having a card and Apple's actually giving you an incentive not even to use the card. Hey, 1% yeah. on the card purchases mm-hmm. you get back, but 2% if you're using it digitally within the wallet itself. And I think it even yeah. jumps up to 3% if you're actually buying from like the Apple store, exactly. like digital project yeah. products there. So. I mean, we're not going to have cards for much longer, are we really? Are These are finally going to be gone. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, uh, for me, like just carrying them around in my wallet. And the thing is, everybody pretty much has their wallet on their uh, phone anyways. And like, essentially, even like the phone holder has like little slips for like, I don't know if you got some cash or maybe a card or two as well. So 
it took me a while to definitely adopt Apple Pay. Like at the very beginning, now I have my credit card on there. I have my debit card on there. Yep. I basically use it all the time. Um, it's really easy if you use like different financial apps to track your spending as well. Being able to tie those in together, obviously, uh, is quite nice. So, well, and having the loyalty cards all in the same place, a lot yeah. of people really like that. Do you have a, you know, the rewards card or whatever you're using to track? for um, member benefits, having those all in the same place is good. I'll throw this at you too, John, just because I, I do have Apple Pay on my phone and everything. I don't use it so often, but I, I am curious, how have you found like more merchants jumping on board with, say, offering Apple Pay at stores? Yeah, I think like a, a lot of the merchants that I'm shopping at have Apple Pay that's there. Um, you know, sometimes I think if the purchase is over $100, I don't think you can use Apple right. Pay. So you can't, that's yeah. a whole, yeah, that's a yeah. whole other topic. On I'm hoping the card, card addresses that. You would assume the card's going to address yeah, that. You yeah, you would assume you'd have to just type in your code or whatever for your Visa card that you have on file that's there. But, um, you know, it, it totally depends on the store. Some stores in Vancouver don't even have tap yet, right? Because they're getting charged that little extra kind of fee on top of that. But from a convenience level, it makes a lot of sense in order to speed people out the door. Um, you know, it actually s sparked uh, the whole having your boarding pass on your phone sort of deal back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. If anyone had that, that would speed up quite a bit of time. Besides, yeah. my mom still uses a paper time card and, uh, or a paper boarding pass. <laughs> prints it really, out. Yeah, prints it out. And she's like, did you print your boarding pass? Do you like, have an extra copy? Yeah, so. Oh, yeah. I'm still waiting for maybe a digital driver's license on my phone and then we can... Digital uh, passport. I'll, I'll yeah. take that as well. I, yeah. the, no bigger fear in my mind than like losing my passport while I'm overseas. Like, so that always And so me easy out. to do. Yeah. It really is, yeah. The digital uh, driver's license would obviously be really sweet because you, you got it. Like my driver's license expired a couple of days ago and now I got to go to ICBC and yep. do my whole, you know, renewal. And it's like, that's an hour out of your day. It's an hour At and least, 20 minutes. If you don't, you yeah, know, yeah. Optimistically, if there's not, you know, 20, 30 people in front of the line, that's there. So yeah, that happened to me once where I uh, had to give them my physical card. They gave me like this piece of paper and then I, I forgot I was going to a concert and they asked for ID there and <laughs> I had to go back to my apartment get uh, my passport. I to, like, I, I'm not bringing my passport to concerts. I didn't even think about it. So no. I was just like, I was like, oh, that was a bummer. So I, I missed like, I think like 20, 30 minutes of the show just doing that. So yeah. put it on my phone. I'm a happy camper. It, harder for those kids to really make fake IDs moving forward as well. So. Yeah, exactly. That is a good idea. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks yeah, for thanks having me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tyler. Okay, that is Linda Fawkes. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and John Reed. He is Chief Revenue Officer and Co-Founder of Faber. And that is it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. It's going to help us reach more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening. 